Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. I suppose it's a new and rather humbling thought, and certainly one born of this atomic age, that man could be working against himself. In spite of our rather boastful talk about progress and our pride in the gadgets of civilization, there is, I think, a growing suspicion and perhaps an uneasy certainty that we have sometimes been a little too ingenious for our own good. In spite of the truly marvelous inventiveness of the human brain, we are beginning to wonder whether our power to change the face of nature should not have been tempered with wisdom for our own good and with a greater sense of responsibility for the welfare of generations to come. Welcome back to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 149, who was Rachel Carson? Today I'm joined by Dr. Patricia DeMarco. Patty, as you'll hear me refer to her as, has a doctorate in biology from the University of Pittsburgh. She has spent a 50-year career in energy and environmental policy in both private and public sector positions. She served as, edu- as executive director of the Rachel Carson Homestead Association from 06 to 2011 and as director of the Rachel Carson Institute at Chatham University, where she holds an appointment as senior scholar and adjunct faculty. She sits on the board of trustees for Phipps Conservatory and Botanical Gardens and for the Allegheny Land Trust. She's also an author writing books like Pathways to Our Sustainable Future, A Global Perspective from Pittsburgh and, in the, and the book In the Footsteps of Rachel Carson, Harnessing Earth's Healing Power. During the conversation, Patty gives us an idea of what Rachel's early years were like, who and what had the biggest impact on her interests, and how she developed her environmental ethic. The discussion also includes how Rachel's legacy has persisted, why those words still carry weight today, and how ecologists and conservationists can help move the needle forward on living with the natural world. All right, welcome back, everyone. And uh, as you heard in the intro, we have Dr. Patricia DeMarco, or as her friends know her, Patty. Uh, Patty, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful, thank you. I really want to appreciate. I really want to say how much I appreciate you joining uh, me to talk about Rachel Carson, who is um, for where I grew up. Uh, she's a little bit. Of, she's a local hero. You know, she's. Um, Right, she grew up right across the river from where I currently live. Uh, you know, not too far away from where I grew up. Uh, and to be able to sort of say that, like someone that had such a big impact, uh, you know, with the environmental movement and ecology in our country, uh, that grew up and is from, you know, little, you know, some little small town on the Allegheny River. Um, that's a really cool thing to be able to talk about. Uh, so. As everyone heard in the intro, we're going to be talking about Rachel Carson. Can you just give us a quick primer on like who was Rachel Carson? 
uh, when people hear the name and, and it's familiar, it's because they probably know of the book Silent Spring. But there was a lot of her life that led up to before that moment, right? When she wrote that book. Um, so who was Rachel Carson? Well, Rachel Carson, she's one of my personal heroes, actually. And she is probably the first woman who entered into the public sphere as a scientist and a writer and had a tremendous influence on shaping the environmental policies of the time when she was in the fish, well, first the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, before that, it was the um, Bureau of Fisheries, the Bureau of Fisheries. And she was the only woman there hired as a scientist. All of the other women that were around were administrative or secretaries. And she actually brought the inquisitive mind and the science-based um, policy into the decision-making process. She was one of the first people who brought the needs of working people who were exposed to chemicals to the attention of the labor secretary, for example, and actually helped to initiate uh, investigations into OSHA laws. She was um, close enough that Kennedy noticed that she was there and um, actually commented on her work and said that his people were making investigations into the things that she had brought up. She um, had spent a good bit of time uh, as a marine biologist, uh, both in her um, studies as a graduate student and then also in her early work in the Bureau of Fisheries. So she was really intimately involved as a scientist in the uh, aquatic and estuarine um, ecosystems in particular on the East Coast. So, you know, she she went to Parnassus High School, uh, which is now part of, um, you know, the New Ken Arnold School District. Um, it's, you know, I don't even I don't even know if that building's there anymore. Um, but, you know, uh, this, this local high school um, where she excelled academically and then she went to uh, what is now Chatham University. Um, so uh, for someone to have such a big impact on ecology, on the environment in uh, the way that she had and the fact that she went through all the schooling for that. There had to be something in her early life, you know, through college, something that really uh, interested, you know, piqued that interest in her and, and, and pushed her. I mean, was it a person? Was it a class? Like, what was it that really pushed her in this direction? I think it was a fortuitous combination of things. First of all, she was uh, the late youngest child in a family with a very protective mother who took um, the then in vogue tradition of nature as teacher. And so even though Rachel went to school and excelled, she also was encouraged to observe, to study nature, to spend time outdoors. And the conditions of her household were such that it was good for her to do that. She would flee. She ran away from her chores. She would be out in the woods with her dog, taking pictures of birds in their nests, which she wrote about. I have not been able to find any of those photographs or any record of them. I would love to see them. But she was given the freedom to explore her curiosity in the natural world. And um, I, she wrote um, in the um, early days in uh, a, a journal that was written for children, she wrote about her favorite recreation. And she was 14 at the time. She was published, you know, in a, in a journal that included people like St. Uh, 
um, Vincent Millet and other people, she was um, intending to become a writer. And her mother was encouraging her in that direction, encouraged her to enter literary competitions and so forth, um, because they were looking at a point where she would be able to teach English, be an English teacher, have a career, you know, writing. Um, when she went to the Pennsylvania College for Women, uh, which she had traveled to by train and stayed on the campus because it was too far to go back and forth in those days, um, she took in her junior year the obligatory science class under Mary Scott Skinker. Now, Mary Scott Skinker was a real force among the lives of the women at the school at that time. She was fashionable and charming and beautiful, and the kids loved her. And she encouraged Rachel to really get immersed in biology. And because Rachel was drawn to the subject matter because of her natural inclination to be in nature anyway. She wrote home to her mother and said, now I know what I'm writing about. And she switched her majors to biology. Shock, amazement, you'll never get a job as a biologist. It's no field for a woman, but ah, but ah, but ah. And of course she ignored all of that. Um, but she did um, get a chance to go to the uh, Johns Hopkins University. She completed a master's degree. Um, she would have liked to have gone on for a doctorate, but her family circumstances were such that she really needed to work. So she actually taught at the University of Maryland for a short time and then had an opportunity to work in the Bureau of Fisheries. And she started out there um, as a uh, writing scripts for the radio show of the director. <laughs> realized she wasn't giving the radio show. She was writing the scripts. But that's really where she came to be into biology was because she had a very inspiring teacher and she had an upbringing that allowed her to really connect to nature as a young child. You know, as as I sort of do these episodes, like showcasing important figures in conservation, uh, I see a very recurring theme of, you know, they spent a lot of time outdoors as a child. Um, they had someone who was an influential figure that um, guided and nurtured them and pushed them to learn more and, um, you know, try to give back to the, the community and, and, and back to nature and wildlife in some way. And, you know, hearing, you know, Rachel's story, it's the exact same thing. You know, she spent a lot of time outdoors and then she had someone, in this case, it was a teacher, you know, when she was in college, it says like, hey, you should continue to explore this and um, nurture that that love for the outdoors. So it, it's just always amazing to me to hear how people that um, have this sort of background of just being outside and then all they need is that one person that cares to push them in that direction. And they literally can sort of, you know, not just change their little corner of the world, but literally like can change how things function in the entire world. Well, I think what made Rachel Carson so unique was that she really was a really gifted writer. And I mean, anything that she had chosen to write about would have been glorious. But because she chose this area and these issues that were so important and emerging at that time, where the policy was actually being shaped while she was present, um, it really gave her an opportunity to have an influence far beyond what might be true. And I think those of us who have been in sciences, you know, staying in the ivory tower, you can get as erudite as you like. Uh, we have a lot of really brilliant people and they publish to each other in peer reviewed journals. 
But when you're trying to get people to change the way they behave or to understand the implications of what they're doing, you need people who can communicate across that divide between science and talking to lawyers and economists as a scientist, you've got a complete disconnect half the time. They don't speak the same language. Efficiency means something totally different to scientists and economists, you know? So she was really excellent at finding the common ground, putting things into plain language, but also into eloquent poetic language that made people notice and were accessible to people. Um, you know, when she was working on the wildlife refuges and wanting to preserve um, places for migrating birds and for estuarine areas for, for fishes and so forth, she would put, this is what you need to do in order to be sure you have ducks to hunt. And this is when they're coming and this is where they go and this is what they need to survive over the winter and you have to preserve those or you won't have ducks. And likewise, she had whole bunches of recipes that she put in the Baltimore Sun. You know, this is the catch of the week. This is what you do with it. This is how you prepare it. And in order to have good fish, you have to have clean water. And this is why. So she did that interweaving of things that people really, the common everyday people wanted to know about and making sure they understood the reasons for protecting the ecosystem that supported both the people and the creatures that she was talking about. So is it that writing background um, that um, enabled her to exceed where maybe other women couldn't? Because as you said, like when she wrote home and said, this is what I want to do, I want to go into biology. Fam say, you, you'll never get a job. That's not a field for women. Um, at that time, you know, the, she she became very influential as a woman at a time when i mean i hate to say it but it's true like women weren't really looked at for advice in this kind of field so, when i was a graduate student there were 125 biology graduate students there were only five women and that was 1968 yeah know? so i mean it was it just that that he was one of the few heroes out there i mean you had madame curie you had, you know, Rachel Carson, <laughs> you might have had a few others, but now there are many more, of course, but mm -hmm. I think she was really a pioneer in that way. And it cost her. I mean, her personal life was much different than it might have been had she become an English teacher and, you know, she would have married and had a family like everybody else. But she was really, you know, she had to make a decision whether, and many women did at that time, you make a decision, do I have a family or do I have a career? You know, if I have children, I fall off the tenure track, I can't go back, you know. And that was true as late as the 70s, the early 70s. You didn't get maternity leave in the middle of taking a degree, you know, it didn't happen, you know. So she had compromises in her personal life in order to maintain her dedication and her passion, what she saw as her calling. And I think that's the other thing that I came to understand about Rachel Carson was that she was really passionate about her work. Um, she was credible in indeed because she really lived it. It was in her through and through, even though at the time she was writing Silent Spring, she was dying of breast cancer. She was very ill and um, even had to have people read to her what she had written the night before and, and read it back to her and retype for her because she was so afflicted with radiation effects on her eyes. And, you know, she was just very sick, um, but she was determined to finish that book. 
because it was important to her to, to speak out at a time when she saw a direction of policy that was not going to be beneficial to the creatures that she had studied and she had seen the effects of DDT on the wildlife refuges on the federal lands when they were spraying and you know she understood and she wrote internal memoranda and um, comments on the effects of these and her testimony to Congress is really worth reading in its entirety. Um, they actually tried to discredit her uh, when she came to talk there. They um, challenged her credentials and uh, Senator Gruning of Alaska at that time said um, that she had a master's degree in biology from Johns Hopkins and was teaching at the University of Maryland and had spent years of research at Woods Hole Marine Laboratory that she was indeed qualified because industry people had challenged her credentials to be an expert witness. So I think standing up to those people and having her words in the congressional record um, as recommendations for the precaution in not putting chemicals into the environment when we don't understand what their effects were going to be, especially their longer term effects. Um, she really argued for a very cautious approach to um, distributing modern chemicals uh, that were not easily reabsorbed into the into the biosphere. Um, unfortunately, the regulations that actually came out a decade after she was passed um, took the approach of titrating how much was okay. Okay, little bits at a time, not too much, but it's okay. And she would have said, find out what it does before you decide whether any of it should go into the environment. EDT <laughs> was one of those that have long-lived, persistent, um, toxic characteristics. It was finally banned a decade after she died. Um, but I think everyone thinks about her in connection with DDT and Silent Spring, and that was her big deal. But she really had, I think, a much broader impact on things like having the Endangered Species Act adopted and enforced, um, because she was arguing that you need all the parts of an ecosystem. You can't you know, promote one part and let the rest of it go to pieces. You need all of it. And um, her philosophy about um, having spaces that were dedicated to the preservation of habitat and uh, support for wildlife as particularly focused on wildlife. Okay, people can come and go there, but they're not designed for sport and recreation and people. They're designed around the habitat preservation for critical places for migratory species or just breeding grounds of species that are important to keep in the ecosystem for all of us. And I think that philosophy was something that really was embedded into the Department of Interior during the time that she was there and that has stayed as their tradition. Um, the other thing that I think is really different about Rachel Carson compared to other people who were active in the field um, was her sense of obligation to the next generation. And there were a lot of people who did conservation writing, you know, and they talked about the glories of preserving the West and, you know, different habitats. Um, but she really had a sense that we have to preserve the natural world and learn for it and preserve it for the next generation intact. And she had a great concern for um, 
doing things today that would have an effect on people who had not had the consent to take on those actions, that we were afflicting behaviors on our future generations where they had no choice in the matter. She was very sensitive to that. And people criticized her for it. They said, well, you don't have any children. Why do you care what happens to the next generation? But she did. She cared very much. And um, she had adopted her, her niece's uh, young son. Um, and, you know, Roger Christie was uh, was her adopted son. And he he was really, you know, very eloquent in talking about how much she cared about the future of the children that she knew and the children who would come, that they would have a world that would be beautiful and vibrant and healthy. Um, you don't have healthy people in a sick world, you know. And that was one of the things that I think she carried forward as her major themes is that we have to live in harmony with nature. We should not be destroying it because it doesn't regenerate unless you preserve it. So you've mentioned as of I that, you know, Silent Spring is sort of like this revered book now, right? Like we, everyone knows Rachel Carson Ford, that book. Um, and it's very widely accepted now, but what was it like at the time whenever it was released? I mean, was it like, world you know countrywide national acclaim and everyone loved it or did she get pushback from well, chemical companies was, the chemical companies tried to keep it from being published they threatened to withdraw their advertising from the uh, publisher they they threatened um uh she had a lot of threats uh against her they did everything they could to discredit her they called her a hysterical woman uh, they called her a nature lover and a tree hugger. I mean, yeah, and this is a bad thing. Why are you upset about this? <laughs> um, they they uh, claimed that she totally didn't understand the economics and the necessity for that the pests were going to overrule everything and run over the world. That even as late as 2007, when we tried to have a stamp uh, commemorated in her honor in Congress in honor of the centenary of her birthday, uh, a senator from one of the uh, states got up and said she killed more people than Hitler and she would not be memorialized on a stamp because she banned DDT and people died of malaria. Well, you know, number one, a lot of places that are doing the best with managing malaria are not using DDT to do it because what you end up with is places where you manage the um, having people have enclosed houses and mosquito netting and getting rid of standing water and stagnant um, conditions that breed mosquitoes are much more effective. And, and getting the people in a place where they can get medical care within 48 hours, there are now medicines that address malaria, that you don't die from it anymore if you can get properly you know, administered medical care services. In places where you don't have those things, and people are living out in the open or in open places and have stagnant water or no fresh water and don't have medical care, yeah, they still die from malaria, but DDT doesn't necessarily help. And it causes a lot of other effects on people as well, including endocrine disruptors, reproductive disruptions. Um, it's been associated with a lot of physical harms as well. So, you know, they weren't known at the time she wrote Silent Spring, but she was concerned about things that had such an unspecific, broad implication. They killed everything. And, you know, she said, well, when you're trying to get rid of a particular kind of, you know, like they would spray for the uh, biting green-faced flies, 
She said, but if you spray DDT broadcast, you also kill the caddisflies and you kill the things that are needed for feeding the fishes. And when the fish eat the dead ones, they get sick and die. And she gave the analogy of the robins eating poisoned worms. And that's where the silent spring came from, a spring without bird song because the worms had been poisoned. I mean, people got it. Oh, the food chain idea, the concept of poisons concentrating as they go up the food chain. A lot of people didn't understand that. And when she was able to explain those things, you know, the impact of her work basically counteracted the objections of industry because they clearly had a self-interested perspective. Now, in the long haul, I think they won because we have millions of pounds of pesticides applied indiscriminately over our fields. Our monocrop culture system in agriculture is heavily dependent on massive amounts of pesticide herbicides and fertilizers. And now, finally, we're beginning to see some initiatives toward regenerative agriculture that is dependent on um, more fertile ground and preserving the fertility of the land, not just poisoning everything in its wake. Yeah, I, I hate to say it, but mosquitoes have their place, right? Like there's a reason why they're here. They they are part of the ecological system. Um, you know, as annoying as they may be to me, um, they're they're still necessary. And then, you know, I, that was going to be my next question: is like, how, how would Rachel view what we're doing today? What we're still doing? Um, and you're answering that by saying, you know, we're still using pesticides, we're still using fertilizers, which I know is a little slightly different topic, but it's still not regenerative agriculture. It's not, you know, working with the land to produce food, but almost really working can, against it. I can tell you that I feel more hopeful these days than I have felt for many years. The um, legislation that passed this last year, the Infrastructure and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and what is being talked about for the Farm Act actually includes three years of subsidies for converting farms of any size to regenerative practice. And getting away from this monocrop, you know, heavily dependent on artificial means to sustain it is finally beginning to penetrate. These crops are less drought resistant, they're less disease re resistant, the land doesn't recover. But if you use regenerative practices, you restore the fertility of the land, but you also capture carbon in the soil, you capture carbon in the plant material, and it actually helps to solve some of the wider problems. As people begin to recognize this as a positive benefit, we have a lot more support for these kinds of measures than there has ever been before. It isn't just the organic farmers now. It's, oh, uh, we're looking at dust bowl situations. Our topsoil is blowing away. Well, if you had, you know, tree lines in between your crops, you wouldn't have these problems. If you had permanent grasses or permaculture types of things that have deeper roots, you wouldn't have these problems. And intercropping among, you know, mixed um, fields where you don't have one thing as far as you can see in any direction, you're gonna have a better chance of having the crops survive and of having the land improve. And um, I think she would have been very um, much an advocate for that approach. Yeah, the You mentioned the increase in support 
um, over the last couple of years. And one of the places that I see uh, a ton of support for these type of practices are groups that I'm a, I'm a member of, you know, Pheasants Forever, um, National Deer Association, Quail Forever. They're, they're hunting based groups, right? Yeah, that, and they're, they're looking at this, you know, like, yeah, these farms, they provide food and a little bit of shelter for while the crop is growing, but outside of that, it's doing nothing for wildlife. Um, you know, so they are showing support for this because not only is it, you know, for, for their members, it's going to help their members like me because it's going to provide more wildlife out there for recreational opportunities and hunting. But the fringe benefit there is that it's also better for the soil, better for um, the health of really our planet, um, better for human health, right? Because and this is something as a culinary teacher that I've tried to keep up on is, you know, the nutritional quality of food, especially when it comes to fruits and vegetables is determined by the nutrient content of the soil. So when we're constantly depleting it, you know, you, you, our, our fruits and vegetables, quite frankly, are not as nutritious now as they used to be. And the reason why is because the soil is not as healthy as it used to be. So, it's all interconnected just as, you know, Rachel's, you know, put out there so eloquently, much more eloquently than I can uh, in silent spring about everything being interconnected in the food chain. It's still there and it's still an ever present concept that we need to think about and try to adjust uh, to make it better for everyone, including ourselves. Yeah. I, I think um, I, one of my favorite, passages from her writing came from one of her last speeches when she was talking to the Kaiser Permanente Foundation on the pollution of the environment. This was the first speech in which she identified herself as an ecologist, and it was done just months before she died. And I want to read you a short passage of that. Could I read this? Absolutely. It says, I suppose it's a new and rather humbling thought, and certainly one born of this atomic age, that man could be working against himself. In spite of our rather boastful talk about progress and our pride in the gadgets of civilization, there is, I think, a growing suspicion and perhaps an uneasy certainty that we have sometimes been a little too ingenious for our own good. In spite of the truly marvelous inventiveness of the human brain, we are beginning to wonder whether our power to change the face of nature should not have been tempered with wisdom for our own good and with a greater sense of responsibility for the welfare of generations to come. And to me, that was her last message to all of us, was that sense of humility that, you know, living in harmony with nature should be predominant over the laws that we pass. Um, you cannot negotiate the laws of nature. They are going to prevail, whether we are in harmony with them or not. So if we don't take care of maintaining the life support system of the planet, we're compromising our own ability to survive. And that life support system is really fresh water, clean air, fertile ground, and the entire biodiversity of species that are the interconnected web of life. We're only one small part of that. And we have to find a place in that system where we are contributing a positive energy and not a destructive energy, a shared prosperity and not a destructive exploitation. Yeah, and just as you are, I feel a little more hopeful in the last couple of years, just because of the things that are being talked about in the national media, you know, the decline of monarch butterfly populations, the decline of honeybees, um, you know, 
growing up seeing a monarch butterfly like i saw him all the time right and it was like oh yeah okay pretty butterfly and didn't think anything else of it but then when you start to realize that those <laughs> those insects play a role in producing food for us and that you know this, these massive declines in pollinator species um or birds you know like that that's not going to be to our benefit and once you start to realize that it's because of things that we have done to try to increase our food supply, quite honestly, and increase our um, quality of life, if I can put that in air quotes, it, it's amazing that you know we're doing these things, and then it's actually actively working against us, um, you know, in providing a better quality of life. So it, it's a when I think back to someone like Rachel Carson, um, who you know in the mid 1900s was you know saying these exact same things and that it still applies today um one i'm gonna say there's a couple things that come out of that for me one i feel um like she was incredibly ahead of her time right um and it's like that's that's awesome that she was able to come up with these ideas and and voice them in a way that were palatable for people that still resonate now like that's impressive to me it's also a little disappointing because it's like, here's someone and, you know, so long ago that was able to tell us what we're doing wrong. And yet we're still doing these things wrong. Like we haven't learned our lesson yet. Like at what point, what's it going to take for us to learn our lesson and realize that we need to, as you said, live in harmony, right. With the natural world, like I spend and, a lot and of not try to conquer it. I spend a lot of time thinking about this because I, I live in that space and I, I think that one of the problems is that even though people recognize that we're under duress and that the trajectory we're on can't continue, people will not move to a vacuum. They need to see where they're headed and see it as better. And so I spend my time talking about pathways to a sustainable future and helping people visualize what life can be like when you're using regenerative agriculture all across the board to make food, when you're using renewable energy systems to provide the power that we need, when you're using a circular materials management system instead of raw material to trash to generate materials that we need to use and kind of reinfuse the values of our society to include not just the dollar value, but also the social and cultural benefits and the environmental benefits so that you have a more balanced view of where humanity sits and looking at things that allow us to have what we need without exploiting others to the point that a few have a lot and most have not, not much. You know, it's way out of balance. And I don't know if it's calling for a renaissance in care for each other, or if it's just a recognition that the exploitative patterns of the past cannot continue. Because, you know, the economy we have right now isn't working for about 80% of the population. It really isn't. Um, and I've been heavily involved with the Reimagine Appalachia process over the last couple of years, even though we had to meet almost entirely on Zoom. Um, We've developed a blueprint for shared prosperity of which about two thirds has already been incorporated into the law um, that will help us reshape 
things like how we get energy and how we use materials and how we generate our food so that we're doing it in a way that helps to restore the land, restore the people and make people feel more empowered for their own future instead of being victims of decisions made somewhere up there. Um, I think when you go into a community that has been disinvested for decades and you say, okay, they're giving a $1.6 billion subsidy to company X to do something, you know, like make plastic. If you had that kind of money, what would you do with it? And reimagine your future. You'd be amazed what they say. So there are eco-industrial parks, you know, being formed that are based on hemp uh, as the raw material instead of natural gas. There are people working on um, circular um, a production of materials that are designed to be recovered at the end of their useful life and have a process already in place when they're producing them to say, when we get them back, this is where they enter the production system. This hadn't happened before. And these kinds of things, I think, are spurred by the willingness of the government to make some investment, even if it's a co-investment, and with the requirement to um, want a community benefit agreement attached to federal money. So if you're giving out a million dollars or more to a company or a project, there has to be an interactive developed community benefit agreement so that that benefit flows not just to the company, but also to the community in which it sits. So that you actually start building a shared prosperity that involves um, all of the people moving ahead, not just a few taking advantage of the rest. Yeah, that that's a really good point because it, we see this every day, right? Uh, on social media, like if you just tell someone what you're doing is wrong, you need to stop. They're going to pull back. It's not you're not going to convince them. But if you can show them a a different way, and the and or the steps to move towards a different direction, they're much more likely to do that, right? Like we can't just all of a sudden say tomorrow, no more coal, no more oil, no more gas. One, that's not feasible. And two, you're going to have too many people pulling back. What we need to do is we need to come up with plans and actual steps that can be taken to move us into a, a, a more, more of living in harmony with nature and, and having us go back to being part of nature. We've yeah. spent so much time removing ourselves from the natural world and we need this to reinsert ourselves back in there it doesn't have to be doesn't mean that you have to live in you know a, a log cabin you built by yourself in the middle of the woods and live completely off the land like we don't have to do that um that might be my dream <laughs> but that that's not something we have to do you know you don't have to go that far but taking small but steps having, you know but having a community where you have a tree protection policy and where you have you know, trees planted as part of the public landscape mm -hmm. and have um, zoning regulations that are permissive of native pollinator gardens and don't require a three inch lawn with a fence yes. to be part of the code. Mm -hmm. Having um, requirements that allow you to put a fence around your vegetable garden, even if it's in the front yard, so the deer don't eat your vegetables. I mean, we're having deer wars in our town like you wouldn't believe. Mm -hmm. So again, they have no predators, so it's out of control. They come and munch on everybody's garden because the woods are, are sparse. So, you know, having to adopt policies that allow you to live in harmony with nature and have natural spaces where people live requires some planning, you know. And 
the same with energy systems. If, if we had a national building code that said all new construction had to begin with passive solar design, if we had done that in 1978 when it was first proposed as the National Energy Acts of 1978 and got killed in Senator Dingell's committee because of the Carpenters Union saying that it would put them out of business, imagine what everything would be like now if all of the things that have been built since 1980, say, had been passive solar design with geothermal earth tubes and photovoltaic roofs. Now, my borough building was built that way and we have had a net zero energy bill for five years. Okay, it isn't rocket science. It isn't an advance of technology. This is not a technology problem. This is an ethics problem. And we need to decide that we have better choices, that we need to put the policies in place to pursue them. And we need to give people the technical support and the wherewithal to adopt them. You can't expect people to pull out of thin air with resources they don't have to make improvements they don't understand. But if you show them this is a job opportunity for people in your community, you can employ your neighbors, we have some money to help jumpstart the whole thing, you can actually generate a, a thriving economy around a regenerative-based system instead of an extractive-based system. So let's, uh, as we're wrapping up here, I want to just come back full circle and mm -hmm. talk about Rachel and what her legacy will be. So in the future, from today, how is her legacy going to evolve to become what hope I, I hope will be even more profound than it already is now, which is really going to be very impressive? <laughs> well, I think people are beginning to understand that what you put into the biosphere doesn't stay where you put it. And if it can't be reabsorbed into living systems without harming them, it will cause harm by accumulating somewhere where it was not intended to go. And I think as we begin to understand that better and begin to take action, um, I think we will begin to have a more fair view of what the world can be like. Um, I know that, um, Some of the words that she said in her testimony to Congress, I think would be appropriate to end with. Um, I'm not gonna read her several pages of recommendations, which I did include in my book, just right here. It's the last chapter of this book. But um, I'd like to talk to her about her principal recommendations from her testimony. And she said, the contamination of the environment with harmful substances is one of the major problems of modern life, still true today. The world of air and water and soil supports not only the hundreds of thousands of species of animals and plants, it supports humanity as well. In the past, we've often chosen to ignore this fact. Now we are re receiving sharp reminders that our heedless and destructive acts enter into the vast cycles of the earth and in time return to bring hazard to ourselves. I think people are beginning to understand the boomerang effect that if we put things into the natural world, like microplastics, like un, you know, like synthetic chemicals that don't biodegrade, that have harmful biological effects, we cannot escape the effects of those materials. And that the economic benefit that they generate for the instant in which they are sold 
It gives profit to the company. It gives a moment of convenience to the user, but it has a legacy of hundreds of years of damage. As we begin to understand that disconnect between the instant convenience and the long-term harm, I think people are beginning to recognize that we need to change things. And looking to things like bamboo and hemp and other kinds of fabric, fiber-based um, materials for raw material instead of fossil fuels, and instead of doing synthetic chemicals that are not biodegradable, to look at things that are algae-based or that are made from biological systems that then can be degraded by biological systems um, and begin to suit the structures of things to the functions. I mean, Rachel Carson was a biologist. I'm a biologist. You, you look at the structure of things being suited uniquely to their function, and we can learn a great deal from that. Um, there are materials in the living world that we've never been able to emulate, like the inside of a pearl uh, shell of a mollusk. Nothing as hard as that can be generated, even steel. Um, you know, I think we have a great deal to learn from observing nature, from studying nature, from preserving it so that we can do so. Well, that's well said. I can't uh, say anything better than that. So, uh, Patty, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate this. And um, I, I really hope that everyone got out of this conversation the same thing I did, which is uh, an even bigger appreciation for someone like Rachel Carson. Oh, she was my hero. Absolutely. And I Thank you for joining me today. I really want to thank Patty for coming on and, and talking about Rachel Carson. You know, this is someone that is um, close to home, right? This, this is someone who had such a huge impact on policy and had a huge impact on uh, improvements for the natural world. Uh, maybe not as much as she would have liked, but still so much improvement. And she's someone literally, you know, grew up across the river, um, you know, from where I'm living today. Uh, it's I, I love highlighting people who have had such a big conservation and ecology impact that are local to me, right? Like the Pennsylvania people. Uh, we have such a rich history here in Pennsylvania of be, trying to be one with nature uh, and do things to the benefit of nature and wildlife. And Rachel is a shining example of that. Uh, if you have not read Silent Spring, I highly recommend that you read it. It is a great book. And while I haven't read Patty's book, In the Footsteps of Rachel Carson, Harnessing Earth's Healing Power, uh, that is in the mail coming to me right now as you're probably listening to this, and it is next in the queue for me. Uh, if you have some time and you want to learn more about Rachel, if you want to learn about uh, Dr. DeMarco, uh, there's a link down in the episode notes where you can go ahead and check out her work that she is currently doing. Until next episode, make sure with this nicer weather in spring right around the corner, you get outside, you take someone with you, and as always, stay wild.